the National Archives podcast series. Okay, sex, lies and registration. This talk was originally written for a particular conference a few years ago and really was on the back of a fairly offhand remark. Uh, I said, oh, well, I can do a talk on sex, lies and registration. The uh, conference itself was called The Cup of Love. It started as a flippant remark and then I realised there is actually a lot in this because what is family history about, after all, if not basically sex and death? And if our ancestors hadn't done it, none of us would be here. So it's a perfectly valid subject uh, for a talk. And um, I already had a lot of the material that I'd found in my researches into civil registration. I sometimes say that I probably know more about the minutiae of early civil registration than any sane person needs to know. But I have found some really interesting stuff. And I very rarely read fiction these days because I don't really need to. Some of the true stories that I come across, you really couldn't make up. So, lies or just mistakes? If you've been doing family history for more than about five minutes, you will have found that you can't believe everything you read on any kind of document, certificate, census, anything really. And sometimes the wrong information is simply a mistake, and that's all there is to it. Sometimes... They are what look like untruths, but they're not necessarily deliberate lies either. People might give the wrong information in good faith because they've been told by somebody whom they absolutely trust and who is utterly reliable. When you're doing your family history, you may have something that your grandmother told you. and Your grandmother was an absolutely saintly, God-fearing, honest-as-the-day-is-long person but she might have been told it by her grandmother and she could have been a complete old rogue. You just don't know. So people give what they believe is an absolutely honest answer, but it may be completely untrue and it's not their fault. One of the most common things is uh, people giving their own or somebody else's age wrongly. You'd be amazed how often people either don't know their own age or the age of their nearest and dearest. Sometimes people simply misunderstand the question. I always tell my students when I teach beginners classes, all the documents that you use were created for a purpose. Now that purpose almost certainly was not for the education and edification of the 21st century family historian. It was for some other reason. There was often money at the bottom of it. But whatever the official purpose was, you have to think about what was going on in the room at the time when this information was committed to paper. For example, somebody goes to register the birth of a child and they are asked questions by the registrar. If the registrar is doing his job properly, he will ask particular questions very carefully and the person concerned will give more or less truthful answers. But if he doesn't do his job absolutely perfectly, maybe he's new or the system is new and he's not quite sure of the rules, he might not ask quite the right question or the person answering may not quite get the right end of the stick. And I'll show you a couple of examples of that. And you will probably be able to think of quite a lot more. Sometimes people might give answers which are not necessarily untrue, but they may be enhanced a little. I think you call it being economical with the truth. It's just... Something isn't, strictly speaking, a lie, but you tell it in such a way that it makes something sound a little bit better than it actually is. Or they might just be lying. This is always a possibility. It doesn't do to assume that everybody's lying, as in, how can you tell a politician is lying because his lips are moving? Now, that's not fair. But some of the time, your ancestors, for one reason or another, may have been deliberately telling lies. Challenges try to figure out when they were telling lies and when they thought they were telling the truth. So we'll start with mistakes and interpretation, being generous. Birth, marriage and death certificates. Age or date of birth. Now I mentioned this already, that quite often people either did not know their own date of birth or someone else's date of birth, or they really thought that they did know and then unwittingly gave a wrong answer. Now if you think about it, 
of the three events, birth, marriage and death, a marriage is the only one that you actually register for yourself. Unless you're some sort of amazing child prodigy, someone else registers your birth for you. And unless there is something very, very weird going on, somebody else will be registering your death. So the marriage is the only one where the people whose information is on the certificate are the people who are actually giving it. Now, those of you who are or have been married may remember that the day you get married is not when you are at your smartest. Your brains go a bit funny. Uh, I can remember sitting in the registrar office and the registrar is asking questions, perfectly simple questions. And this poor terrified man I was about to marry looked at me and said, how old am I? Because he'd forgotten. Um, and he's not the only one. I know quite a lot of people who've said, oh, I gave the wrong information and I didn't notice because I was so panic-stricken or so nervous or whatever. So always bear that in mind. Again, what was going on in the room at the time when this information was written down? Terrified bride, terrified bridegroom. Age or date of birth. When I was a uh, researcher, I used to get batches of cases. And very often the starting information would be, my granny was born on such and such a day, or my father was born on such and such a day. And you'd think that most people, if they're giving you this as fact, they would get it right. But if I got, say, six or seven cases that started with a piece of information like this, it was a very rare day that I went to the birth indexes and found that every single one of those was absolutely spot-on accurate. I would be very surprised if I didn't find that one or two of them were not wrong as regards the day and the month. People usually get other people's birthdays right, but the year was very often one or sometimes even more years out. If you think about it, you know when you send your mother a birthday card or when you have to ring her up and apologise because you posted it too late. But you know when the day is. You know that it's the 18th of April or whatever day. But you may not know the year, either because you have been told uh, that somebody's age is different or, again, they may not have actually known themselves. It's hard for us to imagine now but 100, 150 years ago, you could get through life with remarkably little in the way of paperwork. You did not have to go around producing this or that piece of identification all the time. You did not have to give your date of birth uh, on numerous occasions, as we all do. And if you were looking for a job, a very high proportion of the population, say 150 years ago, would be doing work by hand rather than by brain. And it was a question of if they're big enough, they're old enough. Your actual chronological date of birth wasn't that important. It was, are you big and strong enough to go down this coal mine or do whatever the job was? So it wasn't such a big deal for a lot of people. So although we can't imagine what it must be like not knowing exactly how old you are. It wasn't that unusual for some people in the past. So again, bear that in mind, particularly with working families, labouring families, who might not be able to read and write or might not be able to do it very well. So all sorts of reasons why people might get their own or somebody else's ages wrong. Mother's maiden name. Now this appears on a birth certificate. You will get the name of the child's father and the name of the child's mother. And assuming that these two people were married to each other, it would say Mary Jones, formerly Smith, or whatever her maiden name was. And that usually is how you find out what her maiden name is, so you can then go and look for the marriage of these people. Well, most of the time this works perfectly well because this is a straightforward question. But sometimes it doesn't work. And again, in the years when I was researching, I found quite often that uh, I would look for a marriage and I would look very carefully and then I would look again in case I'd missed it and I would just simply not find the marriage that I was looking for. In desperation, I might then get the birth certificate of another child in the same family thinking perhaps her maiden name was misspelt or if it was very hard to read, maybe this would give me a better shot at figuring out what it was. And sometimes I would get this other birth certificate for some other child in the family and I would find an extra piece of information on it. Because if a woman has been married more than once, 
on the birth certificate of her child, instead of just saying Mary Jones, formerly Smith, if she'd been married to somebody else in the meantime, it would say Mary Jones, formerly Smith, late Dickinson, or whatever it was. So, of course, the marriage I should have been looking for was the one to her previous married name, not her maiden name. And I think this is a classic case of somebody not quite understanding the question or a registrar not quite asking the right question. If you said, what was your name before you were married? She might just give her maiden name. If he forgot to allow for the possibility that she had been married before, it was easy, particularly if you were in a rush, and back in the early days of registration, you didn't have fixed hours at register offices. People could go and uh, knock on the registrar's door at 10 o'clock at night because they wanted to register something. So there are all sorts of reasons why somebody might get it wrong. And that's exactly an example of somebody misunderstanding a question uh, or somebody unwittingly giving the wrong answer. Common law married couples. Now this is a fun one. There was, and still is, this strange sort of myth that there is such a thing as common law marriage. There isn't. There hasn't been since 1753, and even then I'm not sure that it was really counted. Um, but an awful lot of people think that if they live together for a certain length of time, uh, they become common law husband and wife. Or... They may uh, think that, like the mayor of Casterbridge, if you take your wife to a market with a halter around her neck and sell her and somebody takes her on, you are then no longer married, so you're free to marry somebody else. And plenty of people genuinely believe that. So you will get cases where a couple or a husband or a wife goes along to register the birth of a child and they truly believe that they're married. So they say, uh, Mary Jones, formerly Smith, when in fact she's never gone through a proper marriage ceremony with the man she claims to be married to. But you're not telling the lie because she genuinely believes that they're married because they've jumped over a broomstick or clasped hands somewhere uh, or are by some law or other common law spouses. So they're not necessarily lying, but it's not going to help you because you're not going to find a marriage because there was no official ceremony. In Scotland, which has a rather better registration system, it's harder to do that because a birth certificate uh, will normally give you the date and place of the parent's marriage, assuming it has already taken place, although uh, that, is, that doesn't always help. But then my own family history research problems aren't your problems, so we'll, we'll skirt over that one. Father's names and occupations. Oh, they're good. On marriage certificates, which are, I think possibly the most fertile sources of wrong information, or at least deliberate lies or enhancements, although it's the people concerned with doing the registering, so you think the information ought to be more accurate. There are also people who've got some sort of a vested interest in it. And the absolute classic is making your father's occupation, which you have to give on marriage, a little bit more classy than it actually is. One of my favourite examples of this was two sisters who both married within a year or two of each other. And their father uh, was a bargeman on the River Medway. And the Medway River bargemen, they were really like the 19th century equivalent of the long-distance lorry driver. They took very heavy cargoes like bricks and stone. And they were amazingly well-designed boats that, although the tonnage was considerable, you only needed a crew of one or two maybe three, but a very small number of people to make one of these craft go. Well, one of the sisters got married and she described her father's occupation as mariner, which is fine, that covers a multitude of sins, but is absolutely accurate. It's not very specific, but at least it gives you a general idea of what this man did for a living. A bit later on, her sister married, obviously the same father, still doing exactly the same job that he did his entire working life, except this time he is described as a sea captain. Now, technically, this is absolutely true, because although these were river barges and they plied up and down the Medway and then maybe peeked out into uh, the open sea and then went up the Thames, and sometimes they went a bit further, but they clung to the coastline, 
He was technically, I suppose, a sea captain, but you won't find him in Lloyd's Register or anything like it. It's just that he was the sole occupant or maybe in charge of a lad on the boat, and they did technically go out to something like open sea because they weren't in the river estuary. So he was a captain and he was at sea, but it's not what most people would understand by the term of sea captain. And this is a particularly nice example, but it's a long way from unique. Farm labourers might become farm bailiffs, farm bailiffs might become farmers, and all sorts of things. So unless you've got some other evidence to tell you about somebody's father's occupation, always bear in mind that it might not be all it seems from the marriage certificate. Of course, father's names might or might not be on a marriage certificate because if somebody was born out of wedlock and didn't know who their father was or wasn't saying, you will normally find a blank, which is a nuisance because it means you've hit a bit of a brick wall. There are ways around it, but generally speaking, you think, oh, that's the end of the trail because this person had no named father, so I'm not going to find the marriage of the parents because they obviously weren't married and I may not ever find out who the father was. Well, sometimes, to save face, people actually invented something. So that's another uh, little art you have to master, figuring out whether you can take this at face value or not. Did somebody really have a named father that they knew about, or did they just invent something? Addresses. Now, this doesn't apply as much as it used to. Back in the olden days, if you about... Ooh, five or ten years ago when we didn't have census indexes all over the place to find somebody in the census what we had to do was to figure out an address we thought they might be at and search it and one of the ways you might try to do that was by looking at the addresses on marriage certificates and you're often doomed to disappointment if you do that because somebody's address on a marriage certificate is their abode at the time of the marriage and for about three weeks before it and it might be their ancestral home where the family have lived for centuries, but equally it could just be an accommodation address. And I have lost count of the number of times I've looked up an address that I found on a marriage certificate and found it was a lodging house, or at least a house that seemed to have a few unrelated people in it, none of them bearing any relation at all to the person I was searching. So they're not completely useless, but don't set too much store by the address on a marriage certificate because it might be temporary or even fictional. How many people, I wonder, know somebody or maybe have done it themselves who've put down a particular address on a marriage certificate because it's in the same parish where the marriage is taking place, because it was easier and because it saves you money. So there are all sorts of reasons to doubt practically everything you find on a marriage certificate, really. But some of it's true. Marital status, something else you have to give when you're getting married. You have to say whether you are a bachelor, spinster, widow, widower, and more recently, divorced. Well, mostly people tell something like the truth. And, I'm, and remember, we're dealing with mistakes and in interpretation here. We'll get on to the inveterate liars a bit later on. Sometimes people might genuinely believe that they were widowed because they hadn't seen their spouse for some time. Might have been wishful thinking, of course, in some cases. And I've actually been asked this question a number of times recently about at what point can you presume that somebody is dead and therefore their widow or widower is free to remarry. And the answer is basically seven years. And I am not a legal expert by a long way, but this seems to be something that is based on common law because I've looked at most of the various marriage acts and I've only found a reference to it in one of them, and that was a divorce act in the 20th century. But I have also found quite recently in the instructions to registrars of marriage um, in the 1870s that if somebody had not heard from their spouse within seven, the last seven years um, and nobody else seemed to know either. It was perfectly reasonable, it was all right and legal for them to describe themselves as widow or widower. But of course, you might not have heard of your spouse for seven years, uh, but they might turn up again after 14. So you were perfectly entitled to and legally entitled to say that you were a widow or a widower. And you might be telling the absolute truth and genuinely believe that somebody was dead, but they might not be. So 
sometimes you will find, I can't find the death of the first husband or wife, but this person's marrying as a, as a widow or a widower. They're not necessarily lying. Okay, this is the only nice, pretty photograph I'm going to show you. And you might wonder why an eminent person like Emmeline Pankhurst uh, crops up in a talk uh, all about sex and lies. The reason is not really to do with lies, but her parents were very late in registering her birth. And uh, I'm afraid this is not a brilliant copy. It's the best we could get from the General Register Office. But you'll see that's her birth entry. And it reads that she was born on the 15th of July in 1853, gives the place of birth, and her name is Emmeline. And her father is Robert Goulden, and her mother is Sophia Goulden, formerly Crane, his occupation. The usual things, signature and address of the informant, absolutely standard so far. And in the column, the one that you almost never look at and you don't need to, signature of registrar, it's a very crowded box, there's two signatures in there. And if you look at the column next to it that says when registered, it says 27th of November in the same year. Now, she was born in July and she's not registered to November. Now, that is very late. You had 42 days, that is six weeks, to register a birth. And if you registered later than that, you had to pay a fine. And you needed the signature not only of the registrar, but also of the superintendent registrar. And they're the ones who actually got the money. This was part of the way that they made their living. Registrars were not salaried until the 1920s. They were paid entirely on piecework. And although registration was completely free to the user, if you registered late, you had to pay a fine. Now, a lot of people were not terribly organized and probably realized, oh, we should have had this child registered and it's seven weeks old. Well, just because you're disorganized doesn't mean that you're stupid. And an awful lot of people have family stories that say, oh, Granny's birthday was on such and such a day, but on her birth certificate it says something different. And very often this is the reason why. Because the parents realized they'd left it a bit late, but A, you don't have to take the baby to the register office with you, and even if you do, a six-week-old baby and a seven-week-old baby and an eight-week-old baby, they all look much the same. So it's much easier just to tell the registrar that the child is a little bit younger than it actually is. Uh, and this always makes me a bit suspicious when I see the date of birth and a date of registration that are exactly or very nearly six weeks apart. It always makes me think, well, maybe they did just screech in at the last minute, but on the other hand, I won't necessarily be surprised if this child turns out to be a little bit older than they're claiming. So bear that in mind. Now, the reason for putting Emmeline Pankhurst there, apart from the fact that her parents provided a nice illustration of a late registration, and they were honest about it because they could afford to, they could afford the fine. I think this was setting a terrible example because in later life, Emmeline Pankhurst became a registrar herself. So she was the one who was pocketing the fines from people who registered their children late. I don't know whether she ever looked at her own birth certificate. She may or may not have had a reason to. But I just think that's a nice ironic one. And it's also an excuse to show you a picture of her wearing a really wonderful hat. Okay, lies. This is what you've come for. Well, that and the sex. Why do you tell lies? Well, first of all, you tell a lie to get something that you wouldn't get if you told the truth. Or the other side of that is to escape the consequences of something you've already done. You also would tell a lie for the sake of appearances. And this is rather like the being enhancing the answers a little bit, making your bargeman into a sea captain, or inventing a father where you have absolutely no idea who your father is, and your mother doesn't either. But in the interest of respectability, you're standing on one side of a church aisle and your new mother-in-law is on the other side. Well, easy to be tempted, and I can't say as I would blame anybody. And this is why you will often get these invented fathers. Things to look out for. If a man's father's name is exactly the same as his own, well, it could well be that he was named after him. Lots of people were. But it could also betray complete lack of imagination because that's all he could think of. Again, you do need other information. You need to look at this in the round. You need to look at families in the census and look at all the other information that you can find. But sometimes you've hit a brick wall only you don't realize it.
because you think there's a marriage to look for and there isn't. Although I have often found when you've got a, a fictional father named on a marriage certificate, sometimes that will turn out to be a real person, possibly the person's uncle or grandfather, somebody that they know perfectly well is not their father, but it's somebody who brought them up, so they think, I, I ought to put something in this box. If you read it as not necessarily biological father, but if you understand by that somebody is asking you who your guardian is, who brought you up, it's not necessarily a lie, although usually it is, because you know perfectly well that your parents were not married and you want to put something in the box to make it look respectable. To get something you wouldn't otherwise get. And you see at the bottom there what I've put is that the motive is usually to do with money or sex. And this is principally to do with marriage certificates again. To get something you wouldn't otherwise get, well, if you want to get the girl into bed, you've got to marry her. So you might tell a lie along the lines of, uh, oh yes, I'm single. Or you, you might pretend that you're younger than you actually are. But you might need to tell a lie in order to get married because that's the only way you're going to get what you want. Escaping the consequences of what you've already done might mean that you really, really need to get married and you might have to be economical with the truth in order to get to the altar on time or at all. But I'll go into a little bit more detail about some of these now. Lies, first of all, for financial gain. So you're getting the, the, the money again and not the sex. Or just to save money, which is almost the same thing, but not quite. And quite a lot of these take the form of fraudulent birth entries. Now, this is quite fun. When civil registration started, like a lot of uh, brand new systems, the first thing that happens when you have any kind of brand new system is nobody quite knows how it's going to work. And even when it starts, people are a bit unsure of the rules and they're not quite sure what to do to make it work. Um, and you also get people who object to it and don't like it. So there's all sorts of fuss and bother and confusion going on. But once it's settled down a little bit, the next thing that happens is that people begin to see the angles. They think, okay, we've got this new system of one kind or another. How can I, how can I gain from it? How can I turn this into money uh, or work it to my, my interests? Well, there are a number of ways. And one of the first things, as I said, were fraudulent birth entries. Now, sometimes when people commit fraud, they're not necessarily very clever about it. They don't think things through. Uh, and there are a couple of nice examples. In the very early days of civil registration, in 1838, there was a man called James Brooker in Sussex, went uh, and registered the birth of a son. And because he now had a birth certificate, saying my wife's had a baby, and then he went to the, the overseers of the poor in his area to ask for money because he'd got this new baby. Now, what he either forgot or didn't realise is that the system of registration was all bound up with the system of administering the poor law. And most of the registrars, who were not only unsalaried, they were usually part-time and had other proper jobs, a lot of the early registrars were also poor law union officials. So he went along to the, the overseer of the poor, and in fact, what he asked for wasn't money to help cope with this new baby. It was money to pay for a doctor to come and assist his wife at her confinement, uh, and must have uh, realized to his horror that the man he'd gone and asked for the money for the doctor was the man to whom he'd just been to register a birth that hadn't happened yet. So that really wasn't very clever. And another sort of case was where, and I have to be very careful with the details here, I don't get myself mixed up. About a year or so later, a woman called to register the birth of her child. And when she was asked how old the child was, she had just missed the six weeks. The child was, was 47 days old. So that's nearly seven weeks. And the fine at the time, in the very early days, the fines were actually higher than they were later on. And this is an ordinary working woman. Her husband was a labourer or something similar. And she couldn't afford and didn't want to pay the seven and six fine. So she went away again and didn't complete the registration. About a week later, a woman came in to register the birth of a child that was 40 days old. Now, it was a different woman, but it was the same child. And she gave the name of the original woman, who was the, mother, the real mother of the child. And I don't know, and the, the, the documents don't divulge exactly how the registrar discovered that this wasn't right, but 
most people aren't very good liars, so I suspect he just tripped her up quite easily, or she just looked very nervous and confused, so he probed a little bit. But she was very easily caught, and she was uh, actually prosecuted for impersonating her friend. She was doing it to help her out, to get the child's birth registered, so that the woman could get a, a birth certificate for the child without paying seven and six fine, which was a lot of money to a labourer's wife. And there were all sorts of other examples of this, and I won't go into all the details on them, but you get quite a lot of uh, fraudulent births. But the fraudulent deaths, now they're much better. There was an institution that was very popular in the north of England in particular called the Burial Club. And this is where relatively poor people who set great store by at least giving people a decent funeral. They might not have much in life, but you could at least give them a decent, respectable funeral. And to this end, burial clubs were set up so you could pay in a modest sum every week and then when somebody died you could at least get uh, the money out to pay for a, a reasonable funeral. Now, unfortunately these various burial clubs weren't terribly well regulated and this is an excellent example of how can I turn this new system to my advantage and the classic one was that you signed up uh, somebody who may or may not have existed in a burial club, or better still, several burial clubs. And then when you had been a subscriber for whatever the allotted period was, they all had their own rules, but mostly you'd have to be a member for six weeks or three months or something like that before you could actually make a claim. Uh, like a lot of insurance policies, perfectly reasonable practice. So people would pay their few pence every week, and then after the allotted time, they would go along to a registrar, and they would register the death of a completely non-existent person and then they would take this perfectly genuine certificate to first one burial club and then another and they would collect the money. It was a brilliant scam and it actually worked rather well and there were lots and lots of instances uh, of this that were known. And of course, these are only the ones who got caught. I always wonder how many people actually got away with it entirely. There were probably quite a lot. If you're reasonably lucky and you're not too greedy and don't draw attention to yourself, there were rich pickings. The collectors, the people who signed people up in burial clubs, they weren't any too fussy because they were usually on commission. So it was of no interest to them that this person who was being signed up uh, didn't exist and they couldn't care less uh, if they were also being signed up in six or seven other burial clubs. It wasn't their money. They were getting their commission, no questions asked, absolutely fine. In fact, somebody wasn't relating to burial clubs, but there was a very nice quote that I came across, and it said, this spick and span new law goes on tolerably well until people try to cheat it. Then it becomes just as bad as other laws, and a good deal worse. Now, that was in relation to something else. But it was precisely the same issue that you don't, to have a burial, you need to take a body. You've got to have something in the box to put in the hole in the churchyard or in the cemetery but you don't have to take the body to the registrar to register the death. Now, in 1874, there was a big overhaul of the law, and that was tightened up considerably, and you had to have medical certification of death. But before that, it was pretty much a free-for-all. And one of my favourites was uh, a man called Samuel Stretch, who was described by his own daughter as being an idle, drunken fellow who has sold and pawned everything for drink. And this daughter, Elizabeth... One day she went into the local registrar's office, very angry, and slapped down on his desk a copy of her own death certificate. She'd found it when she was going through her father's pockets the night before, which she was in the habit of doing, just in case there was something that he hadn't pawned and converted into drink. And she found this with the details. Not, not only was it her own death certificate, but according to that, uh, she was only two years, six months old, uh, and had died of consumption, which she plainly wasn't and plainly hadn't. And this is how this particular case came to light, because of an aggrieved daughter. And when it was investigated, it turned out that um, that wasn't the first time he'd registered her death. Although the other time he'd done it, he had given roughly her right, right age. And as far as I know, a, a slightly different address. Yes, it was the same street, but slightly different house numbers. And this was a, a relatively easy fraud to commit. Again, it would depend on the registrar not getting suspicious and you having a certain amount of nerve. But you had a fairly good chance, I think, of getting away with it. 
less excitingly, you also, um, you know, more excitingly, you got some real death entries. Now, this wasn't fraud, but it was murder. Variation on the burial club scam, and it was the only option open to you once they tightened up the registration regarding medical certification of death, is that you signed up real people in burial clubs, again, as many as you liked, and then you got their death certificate, but after 1875, to get a death certificate, you had to have a dead person. So in this case, you actually had to poison them or do them in some other way. And there were quite a lot of cases, not just after 1875. Some people did it before then as well. But there were lots and lots of documented cases of people bumping off their nearest and dearest, or their nearest and not very dearest, I suppose, if they were bumping them off, and then claiming the money from one or several burial clubs. And most of the ones I have come across... Uh, which tend to be the, the, the frauds rather than the murders, because I've been looking at the earlier period in the 1830s to the 1850s. Um, there, were, there were quite a lot of those, but there was one very, very infamous case in the 1880s in Liverpool, and there was actually a book about it, which is called The Black Widows of Liverpool. It was two women who were, I think they were sisters, they were either that or mother and daughter, very desperate-looking characters they were. And they were convicted of murdering several people, and there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that suggested they did away with several more. Uh, there just wasn't um, enough evidence to convict them, but they only needed to hang them once, so that was enough. But again, I suspect from the work that's been done on this, there was an awful lot more of it about than ever actually came to light. You also get, and this is a bit of a come down, it's rather dull now, alterations to certificates. And these were usually people who found that they painted themselves into a bit of a corner, really. Poor man called Henry Crooks. In 1895, he wanted to join the post office. And he, wasn't, he was either not of the age that he should have been to get this particular job, or it was a job where, if he was over a certain age, he'd get more money. Again, frustrating thing is about a lot of the documents I find, that you don't get the whole story, you only get bits of it. But he made some alterations on a, a certificate, and obviously not very good ones because he was fairly easily caught. And another man who actually didn't get away with this so much as he was let off with a bit of a telling off, but he, uh, he, he did all right. In 1906, a man called Leonard Burton, he had a perfectly good birth certificate, but he altered the year on it. He was born in um, 1881, but he altered it to make it look as though he was born in 1879 because he was already working for the dockyard at Devonport. And when he joined... He had obviously not been required to produce proof of age because whatever job it was, they weren't that bothered or they would take it on trust. And it was only when he was going for a, a different job or a promotion of some kind, they said, all right, just as a formality, can you produce your birth certificate? Well, well yes, he could, but unfortunately it was two years adrift from what he'd told them when he joined. Now, they, they, he must have been quite good at his job because they did let him off. Technically, what he'd done, he could have been prosecuted for, but the dockyard just told him off and let him have the job anyway because he would have been eligible for the job anyway, even if he had given his right age. So he was quite lucky. Forged or wrong certificates. Now, this leads the way to an absolutely fantastic story which would take me about another day and a half to tell you. One day I will write it up. But this is where I quoted the thing about the spick and span new law. And this was a much better fraud than the uh, small fry little burial club fraud where you might get a few pounds. But there was an absolutely fantastic case in the 1840s, again, very early in civil registration, when people were still trying it out, nobody quite knew how it worked, and somebody discovered that there were accounts, bank accounts in the Bank of England that had been sitting there untouched for several years. People had either died, emigrated, were so wealthy they'd forgotten about a few thousand here or there, and discovered who these accounts were, which wasn't all that difficult to do. It was an inside job. Somebody who worked for the Bank of England gave them the information, although it actually was relatively easy to come by anyway. And this is a brilliant scam. What you do is you find an account that hasn't been touched or checked for several years, and then you go away and you write a will in the name of the account holder, saying, I leave everything to my best friend Elsie or whatever. And then you go to a registrar and say, Granny's dead. 
oh dear, what's her name? And you give all these completely spurious details. The only thing that matters is you give the name of the person who's got this account at the Bank of England that hasn't been touched for several years. So then you take your perfectly good death certificate and your will, which is for forgery, but how can you tell it's a forgery because you can't compare the signature because this person is allegedly dead, so you can't get them to sign something to see if it matches the one on the will. You take that along to Doctors' Commons, you get the will proved, and then with your grant of probate, off you go to the Bank of England, collect the money as an executor, and you pay it to uh, the person that's named in this will that you've made up. So, there you go. There was a huge case, and there were thousands and thousands of pounds involved. There may have been other ones that I don't know about, but there was a really, really big one. And it was, it was quite an organised fraud. There were several accounts involved and an enormous amount of money. They did get caught, which is why I know about it. Again, we only know about the people who got caught. How many lies, misconceptions didn't come to light? We will never know. Now, this is an example of one of the, the fraudulent births. Just see, this is a page from a death index in 1840. And you'll see the two deaths there, John Kehoe and Patrick Kehoe, both in Liverpool. And if you can actually read it, it doesn't matter that you can't, but the reference is both Liverpool, both district number 20, and the page number is the same. It's page number 332. Another page in the same quarter, another John Kehoe, and another Patrick Keogh, different spelling of the surname, but also in Liverpool, district number 20, although this time they're both on page 363. Now, this was a, a poor woman, an illiterate woman, which is why you get two different spellings for the same surname. She went along, she knew about this scam, how you work this burial club thing. She went along to a registrar in Liverpool, said, my two small children have just died of croup, or something conveniently infectious so that the registrar wouldn't go and poke around, she hoped. So she registered these two deaths, got the two death certificates, presumably went and collected the burial club money, and then on the same day went to another registrar in Liverpool, different sub-district, and did exactly the same thing. And again, she forgot or didn't occur to her that registrars speak to each other. They know each other. And in the case of Liverpool, a, a sub-district is going to be physically very small, so it might only be a matter of a few streets. And one of the registrars, at least, was suspicious. He didn't recognise the name of the street. So he followed her and discovered that no such family of that name existed at that address, and there certainly hadn't been uh, the deaths of two children, because the neighbours would have noticed, and they hadn't. And then he mentioned this to another one of his registrar colleagues, who seems to have said, well, that's a strange thing because exactly the same thing happened to me. And um, again, she couldn't have been that clever because she either gave an address that was close to where she lived or one of the addresses was correct. Again, we don't know. But she got caught uh, and fined. But she could easily have got away with it. But that was quite a nice example, I thought. Now, you lie for the sake of appearances or avoiding the consequences. And there are a number of things you could do here. Concealment of birth... This is a bit grisly. This is definitely an avoiding the consequences. Quite a number of cases, and I found these in legal documents uh, to do with criminal prosecutions of unmarried girls who are pregnant and sometimes don't seem to realise how on earth it was they got into that state, but give birth in secret on their own and either kill the child or if she's been concealing a pregnancy under tight corsets, the child might well be born dead. And there are several cases of this. And I will spare you the grisly details, except to say that one of them came to light uh, because the girl concerned was a servant in a fairly big house. And this was in the 1880s, and it must have been quite a go-ahead establishment because they had indoor plumbing and flushing toilets. Or at least they did have flushing toilets until the t flushing toilets stopped working and there was a blockage. And when a plumber was called he found bits of what had been a newborn child. Uh, now, sadly, that was just one example, but it was by no means rare. And again, it was one that came to light, uh, and there were quite a lot of others. There was another case where a child was born, or may have been stillborn, it was impossible to tell, and the girl didn't give birth on her own. Her mother and her sister 
were involved in this and together they concealed the birth. Now the poor girl herself actually died in childbirth and so did the child or was done away with straight afterwards. But there were rumours that she had looked awfully pregnant despite what her family said and in fact there was, there was enough suspicion that the body was exhumed and they discovered that in the casket there was a, the body of a newborn child as well so the, the mother and the sister were prosecuted and that's just two out of uh, many many cases. Unlawful marriages, they're still unsavoury but they're nowhere near as nasty as the, uh, as, as the concealment of birth an example very early on 1840 there was a marriage between a man called Thomas Ford and a woman whose surname was also Ford. And uh, he went to the registrar. And it was unusual to go to a registrar to get married in 1840. And a certificate was issued for him to go and get married. And the registrar, not unreasonably, said, oh, well, your, your prospective wife's name is Ford and she's a widow. Is she related? And, oh, no, no, it's just a coincidence. No, it was no such thing. She was his stepmother. That was illegal. Still illegal as far as I know. And... This only happened because the registrar was suspicious and he asked the neighbours and somebody spilt the beans. But that was an illegal marriage. But it's not at all unusual for people uh, to have married people that they couldn't legally marry. Not because one of them was already married, although that happened too, but because they were within the prohibited degrees of relationship. Bigamy. Now, that was, I wouldn't say it was popular, but there was an awful lot of it about, and most bigamists probably never got caught. You can see how people might, again, paint themselves into a bit of a corner, but my very um, favourite example of that was one where somebody got herself caught in a complete cleft stick. It was a, a, a youngish woman called Sarah Ann Northmore, uh, and she lived in Hampshire, and she married a sailor, Master Mariner. She was quite young, and I think he was a good bit older, and they had a baby, but she didn't seem to enjoy being married very much. Maybe he was away, or maybe she got fed up with him being an older man, but she obviously had a thing about men in uniform, because she took up with a soldier. And then she went off and left her husband literally holding the baby, because she left the child behind. She went off with the soldier, and incidentally quite a lot of her husband's money. And the soldier was posted up to Yorkshire, so off they went. Now, her husband, being a master mariner, obviously had a, a bit of money because he wasn't content just to, just to be angry about this. He engaged a private detective, a retired policeman. And the, the retired policeman, Mr. Sergeant Hockaday, traced this couple to Bradford. And he was quite subtle about this. He, went to, he called at the house when he knew the, the soldier was off doing whatever it is soldiers do all day in Yorkshire. And he asked the wife if he could see a copy of the marriage certificate because he claimed or suggested that he was something to do with the army authorities and this was necessary for some official purpose of their own. So she went and fetched it out of a drawer. Now, she did have a marriage certificate, which they had got courtesy of a registrar who had given them a blank form from his book, which was just illegal on so many counts. So she had a marriage certificate. And then, of course, as soon as Sergeant Hockaday got hold of this, he, he told her what he'd really come for. So now she's in a complete cleft stick. So she's either guilty of having this forged marriage certificate or she's guilty of bigamy. Either way, she's guilty of something, and she'd really walked right into that one. But I thought that was rather neat. And, uh, again, frustratingly, don't know what the outcome of it was because you get little bits and pieces. But it just shows you the sort of things that people get up to given half a chance. Um, I mentioned unlawful marriages, and much the most common of these was the deceased wife's sister marriage. And this was, not, this was an act that wasn't repealed until the early 20th century. And one of the reasons that it did eventually get repealed was because the authorities were frankly fed up with the business of prosecuting men who had married their poor dead wife's sister, which was against church law, but really there is no reason why you shouldn't. There's no blood relationship. And frankly, if you, if you liked one sister and if her and the other one was anything like her, why shouldn't you be attracted? Especially if she was helping you out with her poor dead sister's orphan children. So an awful lot of people either didn't marry their deceased wife's sister but pretended they were married because they knew it was illegal, or they actually snuck off to somewhere else where they weren't known and married anyway and just didn't mention the fact 
that the new wife was the sister of the old one. Eventually that was repealed. Strangely enough, it took about another 20 years before the sort of complementary act where a woman could marry her deceased husband's brother uh, became law. And I have no idea why that should be, but there you go. Getting what you want, you lie about your age. And incidentally, the biggest whopping lie I have ever seen on a marriage certificate was a man who locked about 20 years off his age when he was marrying a much younger woman. I always get a little bit suspicious if you see, if there is a fair age gap between the parties. I always think, well, maybe he, and it's usually he is the older one, is a little bit older than he says, and maybe she's a little bit younger. If people say they're 21 and 29, I instinctively think that could just as easily be 19 and 31, but if you put them in the same decade, it doesn't look so bad. And you'd be amazed how often that happens, which is one very good reason for always allow at least a year or two either side when you're searching for a birth based on what's on a marriage certificate. I did a sort of straw poll a number of years ago uh, and a sample of about 100 marriage certificates where I had independent evidence of the ages of the parties and about one in four had a wrong age on it. It was often out only by a little bit, but certainly enough for you not to go making elaborate calculations about what quarter somebody might have been born in if they said they were 23 on that date in that year. Always allow um, a little flexibility. Incidentally, and it comes under the through misinterpretation, if somebody is asked their age and they say 21, they might mean 21 and upwards. If you, know, you go into a pub and you're quite young looking and the landlord says, are you 18? You know, and the landlord knows, he doesn't mean are you literally 18, are you 18 and above? Similarly, if a clergyman asks you your age when you're going to get married, the important thing is, are you 21? Which means, are you old enough to get married without your parents' consent? So if somebody says they're 21, they might be older, but they're not necessarily lying if they say they're 21 when they're actually 28. So just something else. However, if somebody's under 21, they need their parents' consent to get married, at least in England and Wales. They could elope to Scotland, where it's always been 16. And... You will very rarely ever see one, and I've never actually seen a filled-in one. I've only ever seen a blank consent form. But this was something that was uh, not unknown, to forge a consent form so you could get married. Other means, well, this is an interesting, it was a category I, I had to devise because of one very sordid case indeed. There was a young man, underage, who got married to his girlfriend, whom his parents did not approve of, and he got married after bans. And the clergyman concerned knew perfectly well that this young man was underage, but he agreed to marry them after bans by calling the bans at a completely fictional service. It was the afternoon service that was attended by the clergyman, the young man, the clergyman's housekeeper and her daughter and possibly the dog as well, but about that. And when this was investigated, it turned out that the, uh, the reason he'd agreed to perform this marriage was because he was being blackmailed by the young man in question who said that, all right, if you agree to marry me to my pregnant girlfriend, I won't continue pursuing this case that I have taken out against you for interfering with me and several other uh, underage young boys. So there was a whole can of worms. But I, I couldn't think of any other way of describing that rather than other means. But again, there probably were others. This is a nice example of a, the result of a forged consent form. Thomas Coombs and Agnes Coles married in 1881. They both claimed to be 19, which was about right. Agnes's parents had no problem with her marriage, but Thomas Alfred Coombs parents did. They did not approve of Agnes Coles, whom they claimed was with child before she even met their son. And what they actually did was they forged the consent form from his parents and they went along and they got married. And the day after, or very soon after, Coombs's mother found out about this and went roaring in to, to the register office complaining that the, for, that the consent warms have been forged. Now, unfortunately, there are certain things that they might be an offence, but the marriage is still legal. So once it's taken place, it's a done deal. But Mrs. Coombs was absolutely furious, but could do nothing about it because there they were married. But what's interesting is this is 1881. 
And there, ten years later, there they are, Thomas and Agnes, now Mrs. Coombs in 1891. And you can see them in the middle there, Thomas Coombs, aged 29 or 27. It's hard to read, but near as damn it. And uh, his wife, Agnes, who's about the same age. And they have several children, including, you'll note, Laura, who is 10 who is presumably the bun that was in the oven at the time of the wedding in 1881. But there they are. So um, despite the uh, disapproval of her mother-in-law, she was still married to him 10 years later. And although I don't have a copy of it here, I did check 1901, and yes, they were still together then. So sometimes the naughty runaway couple can be right. Now, I'm about finished now. You'll be relieved to hear. The clergy and the registrars were not guilt-free either. Most of what I've told you are about people lying on their own or making not quite true statements on their own registrations. But there were several cases which have been very well researched, though not by me, where registrars, who, if you remember, were paid on piecework, were tempted to put in completely false entries because they got paid a shilling or one and six or whatever the rate was at the time for each one that they produced. And again, I'm sure some of them got away with it, but the ones who got caught were careless and greedy and had an apparent birth rate in their sub-district that was about eight times the birth rate in the neighbouring district, so that attracted attention. Clergy were also, um, some of the clergy in the very early years were also very, very much against civil registration for a variety of reasons, and a few of them, didn't just disapprove of it, they spread downright lies and actively discouraged people from registering. So this, is, um, th this can be a problem. If you have ancestors that you think were born in Wolverhampton in the first two or three years of registration and you can't find their births, you might like to blame the Reverend Boyle, who was an absolute troublemaker. He did his absolute utmost to stop people registering births with the civil authorities. And uh, there's a whole interesting case there. The unlawful marriages here are where a clergyman who didn't approve of civil marriages at all and said that people were, it was a godless heathen practice and people were living in a state of fornication and were going to go to hell, would then perform a church marriage on people who were already legally married in the register office. And that was an offence. And this is the Reverend Mew Benson in Cowley, who was an absolutely saintly, wonderful man in every other way, but he hated civil registration. He married this couple, Richard Carey and Sarah Polly, and these two, they'd already been married for about three years at this point. They married in 1852 at Oxford Register Office. But when he um, married them, for half price, he said... I'll stop you going to hell. You won't be living in a state of fornication. I will do a marriage for you, half price. Um, and you can see, you've got the groom's full name, Richard Carey. And the woman's name is Carey, because that's the name she was known by. But he has put in brackets Polly, because that was her maiden name. And he's given their ages. And where it says condition as to marriage, he's put, because they're not bachelor and spinster, but they're not married either, as far as he's concerned. So he's put married previously at the registrar's office. And this is the general register office copy. In fact, the parish register says previously joined at the register office. So that's just one interesting example. Now, how do you find out about all this dirt on people? Well, sadly, unless it's already in family information or family documents or you've got some sort of clue or you accidentally come across something intriguing like this in the course of your research, you almost stand a much better chance of finding out about other people's sordid stories and background. Most of the uh, references I've got, they come from the National Archives documents, they come from newspapers, and there's lots of nice indexes. Uh, so if you really go looking for trouble, you will find it, and it will be about other people's families. But if we all do it, eventually we'll all find all the dirt on each other's families, and if we cooperate, then we'll all get to the bottom of all these problems. This is just showing you the National Archives catalogue, so you can all go and play with it and put in terms of your own choice, like bigamy, fraud, whatever. Now, I put in baptism here, and I've restricted it to the search in the Home Office documents. HO45 is a wonderful series. All human life is there. It's basically where somebody's written a letter of complaint of some kind to the Home Secretary. So, um, and this is why I don't need to read fiction, because there are some fantastic stories in here. Search for baptism in there. And this is what you get. Most of it's quite dull. But 
the one at the bottom there, registration of births, etc. Fraudulent abstraction of a leaf from the registers of St. Pancras Parish, baptism of Elizabeth Laura Keeling. Now, I'm not going to start on that story because I've overrun my time and I am going to do it on another occasion. But that was the most fantastic story which you couldn't make up about this incredible family. All It's got divorce, fraud, there's no bigamy, but there's lots of other things. There's adultery. And there are just so many fantastic stories there. So there's another one there which I haven't followed up, registers of baptism, falsification of registers at Stoke-on-Trent. Who knows what that's all about? So your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to go and play with the catalogue, Go and play with newspaper indexes like the Times Digital Archive and anything else you can think of. Just see what you can find. If you're really lucky, you might find your own family, but at the very least, you'll find some dirt on other people. It'll be quite an eye-opener. And if you get any really, really juicy ones and you'd like to share them with me, I'll be very, very happy. Thank you very much. This podcast is copyright the National Archives, all rights reserved.